Greetings and welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, Algonquin Park oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park. During the last two episodes, I've shared insight into the history and stories of the challenges that the park authorities had managing poaching and trapping in the park during its early years. I had originally thought that what I'd shared was all there was to share about this topic, but then I remembered the other day a story that I found amongst the papers of Governor Edward Curtis Smith at the University of Vermont a few years ago. At the time, I was conducting research for my latest book, Governor Smith's Ontario Retreat, which is about to be published. It's a story about the hunting lodge and large private land reserve that he and his family once owned just outside the park from 1896 to 1954. Called Our Hunt and penned by Nancy Bailey, the story recounts an exciting day of hunting of both mice and bears. Though not exactly in a, an Algonquin defining moment, it does provide insight into a major pastime that was very common by the well-to-do across Ontario and Quebec during the late 1800s. As I shared in episode five, during that time, there was this shift away from Victorian values of gentility, respectability, self-mastery and restraint towards an idealized vision of primitive male identity and frontier environment. It included more athleticism and frontier manliness. To fish and hunt in the wilderness, of course, was an excellent antidote and is still a common feature today, though we hunt today mostly with cameras and not actual rifles and tend to catch and release when fishing. What's interesting about this story is its parallel to actual names, places, and people, which leads me to suspect that Nancy Bailey may well have been a nom de plume for either Governor Smith's wife or his daughter. Uh, Gregory and Edward are the names of two of Smith's sons, and Haskin is the name of the original caretaker of Governor Smith's Lodge from 1896 to 1898. The two servants named Mary were the first names of the Smith servants at the time. And if the ages of the children are correct, then the story likely took place in 1898 or 1899. Though not originally part of the plan, it seems like a good way to wrap up these poaching in the park narratives. So with no further ado, here's the story of our hunt. It did not seem to me as I turned over in bed that morning that anything could thoroughly arouse me for at least another hour. We had had a mouse hunt the night before and the chase had become so furious that it was past the witching hour before we finally turned in. Mice had rather owned the house for weeks and we felt the time had come to put a stop to it. Haskins, our guide, philosopher and friend, in the most literal sense, after standing an hour in deep consultation with our host, decided to lend us his cat. I must confess to a feeling of disappointment when our defender appeared. She seemed slight to protect seven well-grown persons. Haskin assured us she was a terrible cute one, and we pinned our faith to that. Our host overdid the hospitality act, we thought, when he urged upon her a large saucer of rich milk. An appeased appetite was not going to augment the spirit of the chase, and after a previous night of riotous mice when they actually played tag across people's faces, we felt we could stand no more. The big fire downstairs, around which we had sat playing games and telling stories all of the evening, looked particularly attractive as the time for leaving it drew near. 
We lingered to enjoy the delicious warmth the big logs threw out and the sense of peace and comfort that sank into one's very soul. A long, low room with rough beams overhead and at one end a well-filled gun rack. Big tables covered with books and games. Around the bright wood fire gathered a circle of good comrades and dear friends. This is the heart of the forest where the great pines sighed and whispered and even the ferns and moss told us secrets of which we in our common everyday life never dreamed. This is a picture which I see when I hear Auld Lang Syne and closing my eyes I'm again in the long low room by the bright fire and I hear again this laugh of those good comrades and again I breathe the charm of Madawaska. Ferrand and Florence made the break and with good nights and a careful glance as to the location of the cat, they went upstairs. We settled down for a few moments more of enjoyment as Frank went down to the tent to start the fire there. It was very cold. The door opened again and Sylvester, our caretaker, came in with his arms full of big logs. As he threw them on, a shower of sparks threw up. A shriek from upstairs announced that the hunt had begun and Ferran's voice was heard calling for the cat. Mama discreetly and hurriedly said goodnight and retired. My temptation was to do likewise, but as my room was in quite as much danger as the invaded one, I decided to mount the stairs and be in on the death. Imagine our feelings and the reproaches cast on our host's head when the cat, the terrible cute one, whom we expected to see bristled and with suppressed excitement went straight over to a bed and curled up in a comfortable place and purred herself to sleep. Florence, Helen, and myself, who had taken possession of another bed, sitting with our feet well under us, felt the situation desperate. The mice flew in and out of their holes, joking with each other at our expense and the cats. Still, that terrible cute one slept on. Our host, finally aroused to a proper sense of shame, came to the rescue. Seizing the cat from her dreams of saucer-rich milk, he threw her bodily on a mouse that was just preparing for a flight across the room. Victory! The suspense ended and nature asserts herself. We had become a little hysterical there on the bed. The absurdity of the situation and fear of the mouse fought for supremacy in our hearts. It is a different cat we now saw. Every nerve was tense, every sense alert. She really seemed twice her normal size. Ha! There! No, she has lost that one, but not another. Oh, no, not another, as we know later in the night. We retired, our confidence restored in Haskins, and firmly in that cat. But alas, all night long she kept it up. We couldn't stop her. Our sleep was disturbed by or agonized squeaks and sickening crunching until toward morning the inevitable happened. Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners, birthday parties and New Year's suppers of mice all in one night is too much for any cat. Our morning sleep was rudely disturbed and our champion was ignominiously kicked downstairs and out the door. Alas, for human gratitude. I have heard it was a lost virtue and believe it now. And so as we felt the battle was over, that our side had won and that we could sleep undisturbed, so it was with a feeling of righteous indignation we heard Gregory's voice calling us. 
we did not care much what he wanted. Sleep just then seemed to us the height of joy. I gave it up with a sigh when the little hobnailed boots came clumping upstairs and excitement chased away sleep when he announced that a big bear had been trapped on the other side of the lake. For three weeks we had tried to get a bear and so far had failed. Our trap had been rusty and the bear had eaten the bait and walked off without even a bruise. Another bear had come down to the water about 200 yards from the house, but before we could get our rifles, he had seen us and fled. So the news that a bear had actually been trapped spread through the house, and we all hurried to dress, forgetting the trials of the night. At breakfast, the conversation was entirely bare. Gregory informed us he was going to shoot it. I thought perhaps I might, but wasn't sure. Helen, Florence, Frank, and Ferrand decidedly refused, as did our host. I felt as though we all resembled the cat in the early part of the evening. One thing our host was firm about, and that was that everyone should see the bear. It was suggested that the little launch would not hold all, including servants and children. Never mind, he said, they could sit in rowboats and be towed. The children were wild with excitement. Edward came in with cheeks as red as his cap and face wreathed in smiles to get his gun. Gregory went down to superintend the steaming up of the boat. After breakfast, everyone flew around preparing for the bear hunt. It was a bitter morning, and plenty of warm clothing was needed. There seemed to be two clouds on the perfect enjoyment of the hunt for our host. One was that Mary, the nurse, couldn't go on account of the baby's nap, and the other that Mary Fitzgerald, the laundress, was attending to the baking and couldn't leave the bread. For a few moments, it did seem as though the hunt would be a fizzle. With a mind equal to the emergency, our host decided to awaken the baby and take him to the hunt and leave one of Haskins' lads of tender age to tend to the baking. So all was serene once more. We trooped down to the dock, 22 strong, to wage war on the bear that waited our coming patiently in the trap. Katie, the waitress, was saved from an untimely death by ordering her back for hat and shawl as she came down dressed only in a calico dress with her hair flying in every direction and her eyes as big as saucers at the idea of going to a hunt. Mary Fitzgerald was dressed practically in heavy galoshes that rather impeded her progress, a winter coat with fur collar over her calico gown and her head surmounted by a large fishing hat. She took her place in the launch besides Katie, who had donned as headgear a scarlet tam-o'-shanter with stiff quills on one side. In her excitement, she had placed the hat hindside before. Helen, Florence, and Mama stood on the dock, shaking with suppressed mirth, which rather reached the climax when Mary rushed from the tent with the baby, rosy and wonder-eyed, with sleep rolled in a large blanket shawl. At last we were all there. The boat groaned under her load, but Sylvester started her and the procession of rowboats, heavily loaded with retainers, swung into place and danced across the waves to see a real bear. It was bitterly cold on the lake and the waves quite high. We felt at least that we should not be lonesome should the boat capsize. We turned up the boys' collars on our own and endeavored to make the baby feel this was an event of a lifetime. His sporting propensities were not in evident that morning. He looked at us with scorn as we growled like a bear according to the natural method of teaching children. We had crossed the lake and the boat had turned into a creek and could, could go no further. 
The rowboats landed their freight and came back for the rest. After much commotion and a good many suppressed shrieks from the ladies, we found ourselves on terra firma. Slippery rocks and still more slippery bogs were to be overcome. Although it would be hard to find a more talented party in most things, their talents did not run in the direction of tightrope nor of the wicked to stand in slippery places. For a few minutes, the spirit of this perilous expedition was forgotten as we grasped frantically anything that would afford us support. Mama, waving her arms wildly as she tried to balance herself on a log over the water, was saved by the timely assistance of the cook, who with the manners of a Chesterfield and a permit-me-madam took her hand and led her across as though they were stepping out in the minuet. But Haskins was there, and with a child on one arm and another by the hand, someone hanging from his coattails, and everyone to his words of encouragement, we safely crossed the rocks, the logs, the swamp, and all. There comes a time in this busy workaday world when cooks leave and children have the croup that I long for Haskins to come and put things into right as he did those dear delightful days in the bush. Our host brought up the procession with the unappreciative baby. In some ways he is more like Haskins than anyone I ever saw. We were told not to go too fast for the bear might spring at us. We all felt very brave and venturesome as we slowly approached the place. But in our hearts, a feeling of pity took the place of everything else, for there at our mercy lay the bear with one leg broken and surrounded by three men ready to shoot him if he offered any resistance. Gregory looked at him and walked off, saying he did not want to shoot. For a few moments, it looked as though no one would put the animal out of his misery, when a small voice piped up and said, I'll shoot that bear. A cheer went up from the guides as three-year-old Edward stepped up and taking a little twenty-two rifle, a guide holding the barrel and Haskins standing beside him, the little fellow killed the animal with the second shot. His mother, with both ears stopped and her back turned, felt she was not such a sport as she had imagined. There were others who did the same, but for fear of spoiling their chances of going on another bear hunt, I will refrain from naming them. Then began the horrid work of getting the bear ready for embarkation. It seemed to have a fascination for some. Katie watched with much interest, for she had been a cook. I presume the scientific side of the question appealed to her. But most of the party was ready to go, and we clambered back over logs and rocks to the boats, quieter than before. It hadn't been quite what we thought it would be. The guides came after, carrying between them the great hulk of Bruin, which had been trapped and shot. The boats were loaded again, Sylvester started up the steam, and we were off for home. As we neared the camp, Haskins' lad was on the dock. We called out to know if the bread was burned. He said no, it was all right. I knew it would be if left to Haskins, and he had thrown some big logs on the fire that blazed us a welcome. Luncheon was ready, and we were all hungry. The baby was put to bed to finish his sleep. A feeling of contentment, a personal well-being settled over us, touched with a little sadness as we thought of the bear. That afternoon, the rain fell in torrents. The wind blew through the great pines as they swayed majestically to each other above all the trees of the forest. We gathered around the fire with games, books, and work. While we were sitting there, the door opened. Haskins, with the water dripping from his hat, said in his quiet way, as though he was telling us a most ordinary piece of news, and wanted to apologize for taking so much time, that there was another bear just up at the spring, 
and wondered if any of us wanted to go up. We all felt that one bear a day was enough, all but Edward, who promptly ordered on his rubber boots and Macintosh. Haskins said he would take good care of the little lad, and putting him on his back, off they started in the storm with Sylvester. When they came back, Haskins said Edward refused to shoot, saying one bear is enough for today. And so the day wore away and night came on. The storm kept up, and we listened to its force and power, comfortable in our cozy quarters. The peace of the forest life crept into our hearts, and Haskins stole quietly in and sat among us. I hope you've enjoyed this gem of a story about those visiting Governor Smith's Ontario retreat such a long time ago and the mixed feelings that folks at that time actually had about hunting. My book, Governor Smith's Ontario Retreat and Madawaska's Hamilton Haskin family who kept it safe 1896 to 1957 will soon be available both from the Friends of Algonquin Bookstore and also on Amazon and Kindle. In our next episode, I'll share the history of three lodges that the Grand Trunk Railway built in Algonquin around 1908 to 1912, whose remains are long gone. The Highland Inn on Cache Lake, Nominegan on Smoke, and Minasing on Burnt Island Lake.